So we're talking the next three weeks about the mission of this particular church, right? And uh, about the, the change that occurs through a particular church. Now, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who is, who is not a church planter, famously said, um, if Christians would seem to me to be more saved than they are, I might believe in their Savior. That's a good, pithy way to put it, right? If Christians would seem more saved than they are, if they'd be transformed, I'm more likely to believe in their Savior. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we're all very committed to our positions, and often the data that we see doesn't change our minds. But I do think that he touches on something that's really helpful for us, which is to say that there's, uh, you know, it's easy to target people who apply a moral standard, Christians who say, hey, we should be changed people. But we should also expect the rest of the world to ask the question, are you a changed people? (laughs) Has any transformation taken place? Is there anything good that we can expect from you, Christians of the world? And so the church, in part, needs to answer that question. And our goal this morning is to answer that question. How does change happen? What do we believe about that as a church? How do we invest in that? So, you know, if you ask a neighbor, you get to know them, you'll probably find out at some point why they live the way they live, why they do what they do, how they grew up, you know, what makes them limp, you know, what they struggle with, why they wanted to own a boat or make a million dollars. Or, you know, you listen to your own life if you want, you can learn things about, you know, how much you want to live a certain way, how 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 painful it is to, to not have uh, a soulmate or or for no one to truly know you for who you really are to 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 worry about your employment to worry about losing your job like the things that make you you the things that shape you and inform you your concerns about whether you'll live long enough to see you know your children's children grow up in the world like all of these questions that we have these things that form us these realities that we live in and I think it's true that this morning we need to be able to say that if the church is, if the church is really worth anything, if this church, this particular church, is doing anything, then it needs to speak to those deep situations, questions, realities that shape us. The little rituals that we live by, the stuff that we do. The church needs to speak to the stuff that forms and shapes us most. So the first of these three kingdom parables we'll be using to describe uh, our, our ministry plan as a church, and it's this parable of the treasure. Very short, right? There's one right after it that talks about a pearl of great price, kind of a, a, a similar story. And this is a challenging parable for us and for me even culturally, because we've been trained to think that everything that's really valuable can be curated in our lives from our online world to the stuff that we can buy and you know the way that we can make our kids look or our friends look or the person that we can marry. That's that's all the valuable stuff. That's all the treasure. You know? That we can cultivate it or finance it. So the question really is like how does a parable about finding treasure fit in this world where we believe we've already found everything, we just can't afford it all yet. Right? So that's our situation. We believe we've found everything, we just can't necessarily afford it. And yet here is Jesus saying what maybe is one of the hardest things to believe. Where he says, there's treasure you haven't found if you haven't found me. It's really tough. So the first of those kind of three kingdom parables pushes us in that direction. The first challenge to this idea we're going to talk about this morning, a formative worship, right? A worship that shapes us. Is that we're already being formed by other things. If we were the man in the field, we might say, 
you know, we, we trip and fall on the treasure. But we might say, gosh, if I picked up that treasure, I'd have to let go of my other treasure. And I like my other treasure. It's the treasure that makes me happy. That's the challenge. There's this great uh, Jack Handy quote. Jack Handy, maybe one of the best comedy, the, the most talented comedy writers of our time. Some of you know who Jack Handy is, but how many of you know who Jack Handy is? You hear that name, you know what we're talking about. Okay, that's good. Some of you are going to learn something. You're about to hear from one of the greatest minds of our time. So here's what he says. He's one of his greatest, one of my favorite quotes from him. Uh, he, he collected it in a group of thoughts that he called Deep Thoughts, and they happened to be on Saturday Night Live from time to time. Great, just an amazing writer. Here's what he says. Once, when I was in Hawaii on the island of Kauai, I met a mysterious old stranger. He said he was about to die and wanted to tell someone about the treasure. I said, okay, as long as it's not a long story. Some of us have a plane to catch, you know. He started telling his story about the treasure and his life and all, and I thought, this story isn't too long. But then he kept going, and I started thinking, uh-oh, the story's getting long. But then the story was over, and I said to myself, you know, that story wasn't too long after all. I forgot what the story was about, but there was a good movie on the plane. It was a little long, though, right? I love that picture of the person who's entirely distracted by their own stuff and their own lives, that they miss what's important right in front of their face. And this is the challenge for us. As we look at a Jesus who says, you need to stumble over the treasure in a field. And it has to shape you so overwhelmingly that you'll sell all you have in order to own it. Jesus knows that the parable of the treasure is a tough one. The disciples know what treasure is, right? It's a net full of fish. It's being able to do your job with being bothered, without being bothered by someone else, right? But Jesus says that the one who follows me has to be a treasure hunter. She has to be capable of joy and delight. She has to have her eyes open enough to see the treasure in a field. So he says there's a man walking in a field. Maybe he's looking for a field to purchase. Who knows why he's there? He might be looking for value. He might be looking to farm the land. None of us is typically looking for buried treasure. That's not an everyday activity. We're not all detectorists, right? But we're open to the idea of striking it rich at any time. Like that doesn't, we don't have to make an appointment for that. We care about that. Jesus says the parable, the focus of this parable, is on the way the kingdom of God forms us. The kingdom of God is like this. It's treasure. And when we encounter it, we sell everything. The kingdom comes into our lives like found treasure and we're moved to this kind of self-giving life, this radical joy. So the question really is, what's the treasure? That's what you want to know as you look at this. What, what is the treasure, Jesus? We have some hints, but here's one big hint from Colossians chapter 2 that I want us to see. So Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 5, um, Paul is trying to kind of Uh, St. Paul is trying to lift their gaze a little bit from kind of the earthbound and ordinary and say, look, you need to see what's happening here, that there's something of, of of unsurpassed value for you in Christ. And so he walks them through this. He says, look, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. So he's talking about a particular church in a particular place. For all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, you know, becoming members of a church together to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, 
For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. And again, he's talking about how you live together as a particular church and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul takes Jesus' comment about riches and he says the riches are found when God's people dwell together in this particular way and they see Jesus together. So Paul's writing to a local church. He's defining them. He says, as you pursue Christ together, as you grow in understanding of his word, as you are knit together, you will gather the incomparable treasure of Jesus. As you live as the church, you will gather the incomparable riches of Christ. The treasure is the uniqueness of seeing Christ through his spirit in the body and life of the local church. The treasure is here. The treasure is Christ seen right here in and through you. This is really an incredible statement. So for those of us who prefer to live as an island, I know that's like one or two of you, okay? You want to be left alone in general. That's like the happiest thing. Or at least you want everybody to know that you want to be left alone, but you don't totally want to be left alone. At any rate... The idea that Jesus gives us is if you really want value, if you really want treasure, you're going to have to seek it through this body of believers united together in Christ. So we like to think about the church as kind of this individual sort of thing that we can do from time to time. But that's not the way it's described here. The activity that we do together as the church, what's the activity? Well, we smoke things, we hang out together and we vote on things from time to time as a congregation. We do all. What's the main thing that we do together as a congregation? What do you think? What is the main thing that we do besides complain about the pastor? What is the main thing that we do as a church? What do you say? Yeah, there we go. We worship. That's what we do. We hang out and we worship for better or for worse. You know, that's what we do. So Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this, kind of moves the picture forward of what this treasure looks like. So then, and by the way, the first two chapters of Ephesians are just occupied with riches, with an inheritance that we receive from Christ. So you're reading it and you're like, what's the inheritance? You know, it's like you're sitting there at the table and, you know, uncle so-and-so who's, let's be honest, he wasn't a great relative. You didn't know him closely, but you're named in his will. You know, so you're sitting there and you're wondering, I'm sorry, that's not true of Jesus. But anyway, we're just saying, so you're sitting there, you're waiting for the inheritance. You want to know what is the inheritance? That's what Jesus is doing as he reads, as kind of works through this story, through the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul says, here's the inheritance. You want to know what it is? Okay. It's not a bunch of funky books and clothes. It's not a weird thing you're never going to use. Here's the inheritance. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, again, talking about the church that he's building, it's being joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Your inheritance is to be holy stones into which the Holy Spirit lives and breathes, dwells, and transforms us. This what you're doing right now. 
is part of your inheritance. The riches that you receive in Christ. You didn't know that when you got dressed this morning, you know? Just kind of getting there. But then you just think, well, I mean, some of you look really good. But I mean, you just think about like, hey, I'm coming to church. You're coming to church. What are you doing? You're coming to church. You're taking part in this great inheritance that you receive through Christ. This is what it looks like. These are the riches. Now, I don't think that's our expectation, by and large. We've been taught to view church life as a spiritual thing. All right. It's a mainly spirit. It just exists in its own in your own personal life and it contributes to our religious lives. We've learned to expect that treasure is figurative. You know, it doesn't re- it's not really treasure. OK, you know, it's really, you know, the journey itself or the friends that we made along the way. You know, that that's what the treasure is, you know. But in order for it to be formative, we expect it to be like manageable, predictable, maybe inspiring on occasion. But definitely over by noon. Right. These are the things that we expect. Jesus, I believe, means for us to find something truly valuable. This is not a bait and switch. When he says you stumble over this thing and it's of surpassing value, he really means it. So this is what we experience. If Ephesians expects inexhaustible inheritance, that we lay hold of as we become the temple together, there has to be more than just like a worship experience. So the church worship, the church's worship, our worship, the thing that we say we do at New City, one of the three things we're going to talk about is it's a treasure hunt. The church's worship can't be less than a treasure hunt. It can't be something that you attend, you know, the same way that you attend other things, right? You don't attend an emergency room. You don't attend your own wedding. These are big things, right? And you also don't attend church if it's really church. At New City, we fight for the fact that worship cannot be less than formative for us. It can't be less than changing our lives, Why does it matter to say that? Because everything else in our lives is formative. The pain you experience in your life is formative. The struggles that you incur in your life are formative. The successes you deal with in your life are formative. Your family members are formative. Your friends are formative. All of these experiences transform us and change us. Jesus has to also give us a way to be formed and shaped. It's a loving gift of God. He knows that this week you've had 27,000 things that have affected you, changed you, shifted you, challenged your loyalties. And so lovingly, Jesus says, let me give you the kind of ritual life, and ritual not in a bad way, but saying like repetitive, predictable, knowledgeable, understandable. It's in my schedule. It's in my life. Jesus says, let me give you this world. That's going to counterform you. It's going to form you against the ways that other things form you. So, which really means that at part, some of you are going to have to believe, we're going to have to work really hard on this, that you're not already perfect. Okay? Or that the person next to you is not already perfect. And you have to be formed. You have to be shifted. You have to be changed. It's a loving gift of God to say, I know you're ragged. Let me help you. Let me give you songs to sing. You know, you show up at church and you walk in one of these, you know, two entrances and somebody warmly greets you like they did this morning, man. Killer welcoming people. Great welcome. Well done. 
they welcome you, you grab some coffee, you make small talk about the jackets or something else going on, or if you're just learning about hockey, you talk about the puck thing and all that stuff, and you, you have this conversation, right? And then you move from there and you come and we give you like the treasure map. And what does the treasure map have on it? It has this thing that we call the liturgy. And what the liturgy is, is it's each one of these points whereby we begin to stumble over the treasure that's found in a field. You walk in and you, you know, you recognize here's the map. What, do, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? It's leading you somewhere. It's telling you that you're going to be welcomed. You're going to be called to worship. You're going to have songs to sing. You're going to confess your sin. All of this is part of the treasure hunt. There's a pardon for sin. And then we cut the kids loose for a bit so they can learn how to follow treasure maps too, right? And then there's also this word of God in the sermon where Jesus, we believe Jesus even preaches a better sermon than the preacher and tells you the truth of God. And it all leads up to where X marks the spot, which is here, where Christ offers himself in the Lord's Supper. The treasure in a field. Our job as a church is to lead each other there each week. This thing that actually forms us. Okay, so I'm going to theologize for a second, okay? We're going to talk about real experience in the church. What, what do I mean when I say the church forms us, okay? Because pretty much if you ask anybody in any church, they'll tell you, well, yeah, you know, it should affect your life. Like, it should affect you. I don't know what, exactly what that looks like, but it should be a net positive in your life, okay? But I'm going to get real churchy if you're ready, okay? Real doctrinally deep. I'm going to talk about three women at a bar getting a beer. Stick with me. Right? Three women at a bar getting a beer. Some of you are thinking this is the least theological example you could ever use. But just hold on. It's going to get more uncomfortable. Three women sit at a bar. The first woman says, give me an empty mug. All right? She's a good Baptist. That's what she does. Give me an empty mug. I'm at the bar. The other two get beers. Right? They're Lutheran and Presbyterian or who knows. They want, you want me to tell you what kind of beer that they're getting. I'm not going to do that. Okay? The first woman grabs hold of the empty mug. She puts it to her mouth and she sets it down. She traces the lines on the mug with her index finger. You ask her what she's doing. She says, going to the bar is very important. You should always go to the bar. Okay? Make sure you go, sit in the right place, get the right mug, put it to your mouth. Not important to have beer. Just do the thing. It's the thing she ought to do, ought to do in order to live a good life. She doesn't enjoy it all that much necessarily. She wonders why she has to do this regularly. She knows what it is to hold a beer mug. Okay? What is this whole thing accomplishing? It's her duty. She sits for a while. She gets in a bar fight. She leaves when she's had enough. So the second woman, she exchanges a smirk with like woman number three. Right? Because they've seen what woman number one has done. She takes the beer and she pours it over her head. She works the beer into her hair and her pores. She looks very satisfied with her beer while she's doing this, okay? She's a pro, obviously, this, she's done it a lot. She might even speak in some weird tongues while she does it, right? But she has got, she's pouring beer, beers all over the place. She takes a deep breath. She says, this is a very important experience for me. The beer is very important. It's crucial from time to time, not necessarily a habit, but you always need to remember what it's like to be covered in beer. She even, peer, she even pours beer over her head at home, on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings, watching online videos of other people pouring beer over their heads. 
She's good at this. She has learned. Now, the third woman, of course, drinks the beer. Drinkers one and two are working really, really well, really hard at bar attendance. They're very good at attending the bar. Okay. The first one's hanging in there. She's bringing her faith and her duty into the beer experience. I mean, she is really trying. She feels it's going to work, the ritual of going to the bar, holding the beer mug. Sometimes she feels down about it, but she still goes. That's not really formative, but it's very diligent. She's a very diligent bar attender. The power for her, the formative aspect, is in her fulfilling her duty. Making herself a better bar attender. Now, the second drinker has an odd experience, but one that she doesn't really need to repeat all that often. She gets filled up by the experience. It's good for a while. She brings her faith into the bar, right? And she says, I want to know what that beer life is like. And she pours it on her head. She brings her faith and she really experiences it. She's going to smell like beer for at least a couple days. The power is in being immersed by the beer, in proximity to the beer, okay? It's not really formative, but it is immersive. She has experienced something. The last drinker is shaped by the physical action, by the taste and the smell. The Bible says that good wine gladdens the heart, right? The alcohol has gladdened her heart. Something real has happened. The power is not in what she brings to the beer experience. Hear me. But the beer itself. She's experienced it. She wants to repeat the experience. Not because, because it's not just an experience. It's an actual physical transformation. She knows what it's like to hold the mug and drink the beer. That's fine. She wants to repeat the experience because it has shaped her. Because something has actually happened. Right? You don't have to be told as a Christian that you should go to worship. If you understand that worship is truly formative. You go because it shapes you. It nourishes you. It gladdens the heart. Okay? It makes you into a new creation. Now, you might think it's going to get better. We go from bars to something else, right? But one of Steinbeck's, Steinbeck's great observations about the church, here's what he said, and I think we have to hear this. He said, the church and the whorehouse arrived in the far west simultaneously. That's what he says. He says both things happened in, in pioneer lands. You'd have both things pop up, whorehouse and church at the same time. He said, each would be horrified to think that it was a different facet of the same thing. Surely they were both intended to accomplish the same thing. The singing, the devotion, the poetry of the churches took a man out of his bleakness for a time. And so did the brothels. Worship has to be more than taking us out of our bleakness for a time. It has to be more than the experience being poured over our head. Worship has to be formative. It has to shape us. Something has to really happen, not because you're doing your duty, right? Not because you're getting church all over you, not because it's an experience, but because it's real treasure in a field. This is what Jesus is telling us. Treasure you not only see and hear, but you eat and drink too. What happens in the, in the worship service, right? If you took your bulletin and you looked at it, bulletin, worship folder, whatever we call this, and you see kind of this outline here on the second page, um, and you see kind of all that it's leading toward, this is 
This is like the spiritual force of gravity at work. From the time that you start, it, you could call it a treasure hunt. You could also call it this force of gravity that's driving you. It's, it's pulling you. You aren't doing it. It is affecting you. It is working on you. Because what happens every time you come into worship is you start to remember how you create distance from God. Every time you come to worship, if you're doing it right, you will remember again. You will recognize how you create distance between you and God. And the liturgy in the church is kind of geared towards showing you that God draws you to himself. You create distance. He closes the distance. Okay? Every week, this is what we learn as we worship. God calls us across space and time to worship. We sing. We see our sin. We recognize we run from Him. We receive His pardon. We do all this stuff. The worship shows us that God bridges the distance. And finally, at the Lord's table, there is no distance left because now you're actually partaking of Christ Himself. Spiritually, you are being nourished directly from Jesus. There is no longer any distance. How cool is that? That God has created this way for you every week to see the distance closed between you and Him. That's how He works. You come in the door needing to be shaped, and He says, I will shape you. I will draw you to Myself. If you're a perfectionist, if you're a person who's grown up in the world that says you're nothing unless you can do it yourself and hide when you don't do it well, here you have a worship service where God says, if you're incompetent, that is a qualification for being here. If you run, it's a qualification for being a part of the liturgy. You have to see your sin in order to see God drawing you close to Him. So there's something very good and encouraging about that. We see every week there's a treasure hunt and the treasure hunt ends at a particular place. So we have to get this right, okay? We have to get this understanding of worship right. We can't be thinking about it in terms of what duty we bring to it and our, our devotion that we bring to it, making it useful, or, or the fact that it's just an experience that we just wash ourselves in, right? But it has to be something that is deeply imbibed, drunk, and it has to, be, it has to change who we are. One theologian puts it this way. He says, all Christian workers desire the people that they work with to sell all that they have, right? This makes sense. I mean, we, just as an aside, you recognize, like we're talking about what's the mission of the church. Of course, we're going to tell you, sell all you have and follow Jesus, right? That's what the pastor wants to see, like dedication, you know? And I, I, in my life too, and in your life, like we want to do that. So often we, we maybe do this the wrong way. I want you to just hear this. All Christian workers desire the people they work with to sell all they have, live more joyfully and entirely for the kingdom. The temptation is to exhort people to pursue various acts, to give more time and money to the church, to pray more, to be more dedicated or more joyful. You do that. All of which are forms of the law that kills. However, however salted they may be with evangelical language, right? We make it sound real good and churchy and godly to do this. Congregations will wilt under the crushing burden of musts. Okay? You will be crushed under that burden if you view worship as the duty that you bring, the diligence that you bring, the professionalism that you bring to worship. 
What we need first, not first, is a season of Jesus stories where we hear facts before orders, joy before sacrifice, discovery before decisions. Hear that, discovery before decisions, gospel before law, beatitudes before commands. And when Jesus, the treasure, is found, that person is carried away by joy. Almost without being told to do so, they sell. Here in our parable, no one actually tells the farmer to sell his stuff. He's carried away by joy, the joy of the discovery. And so living a Christian life has to be shaped by the finding of Jesus. And he gives us the way to find him through, the, through his worship. This is incredibly beautiful. Let me give you a few applications, okay? I think they arise out of this idea that worship is formative. One is don't attend worship. Sounds bad, okay? Actually worship. Don't attend worship. Actually worship. We like to add distance to it by calling it an experience. No, I attend it. I do it. Expect that God will transform you by the work of His Spirit. Open your eyes to that fact as you come in to worship. Come in to worship, not looking at your qualifications, not dragging your resume with you, Expect that you're actually going to be enabled to live more for Jesus. Simply by the treasure hunt the Lord leads you on in worship. Second thing is this. Let worship take you somewhere. Okay, we like to think about worship as kind of the rest stop on our life's journey. From time to time, you stop. You know, you go to the vending machine. You do whatever. You shake a hand. You leave. But I want you to think of it more as a compass that shapes your traveling. Okay? Okay. It should be the journey itself. Your workday life, the other things you do are only worth doing if they're in the same direction as the treasure in the field. Think about that. The reason Jesus uses this illustration is he says, everything needs to be put into context with the treasure in a field. All the living, the, the living that we do needs to be in the direction of discovering more who Jesus is and worshiping him well. Right? So from time to time we make difficult decisions about how we're going to live our lives because we know we need to worship and we know we need to be transformed and because we know it's formative. Not because it's our diligent calling to do it, but because it's truly formative and transforming and life-changing. We have to see it as the treasure in the field. It's not just figurative, right? God is really giving us a treasure in this. And, and you know, you think about it, all the things that we do you know, the treasure that he leads us into, the sacrificial living for our friends or serving our spouse and children, leading our employees less like profit centers and more like human beings. If that's the way that Jesus, the treasure, leads us, that's what we should do. That's the way we should go. We follow him. We know where X marks the spot and we take off after him for joy because the treasure's there. We do what he does. We let worship take us somewhere. Anticipate that it will mess you up on occasion. That you will worship the Lord. Look, I have to, I have to preach like at least 40 times a year. Every time I do that, I have to accept the fact that the Lord might mess me up this time. When I'm, when I'm reading and studying the text. That is going to do something in my life that I don't necessarily want. Because I like to plan. I like to have my ducks. I like to have my things done the way in which I want to do them. Okay? Vacation is just the time I mark until I'm back in routine. 
I'm sick. I know, that's okay. Right? We have to recognize that worship may and should take us somewhere. We process through it toward Jesus. And we say, thy kingdom come, and he transports us. He tells us how to live. Here's the third one. When you're bad at worship, go to worship. If you're bad at it, go to it. Nobody else says that, right? Hey, are you bad at doing it? Come and, come and join us. You're terrible at this? Fantastic, right? Unless you're, you know, a uh, uh, force in playing golf and you want to earn some money. In, in general, you don't ask someone to come and join you if they're bad at something. And yet, this is what's true about worship. Because worship's formative, you don't have to be good at it. It shapes you. God invites you to this great work that involves you tripping over something. It involves you stumbling. I'm an excellent stumbler. Very good at it. It has to give you hope. Don't bring your resume to worship. Bring your three-inch heels. They're better for stumbling. All right? Don't take that literally. It's okay. But what we're saying is that the process of worshiping the Lord is that we are called to stumble over the truth of the gospel and to recognize that even in our messiness of not doing it well, we are exactly where we're supposed to be. You cannot come to worship on a Sunday and be in the wrong place. Can you believe that? Very strange. A lot of time you don't know where you should be and what you should be doing. You come to worship the Lord as his child. You are in the right place. You know that. That's where you're supposed to be. It's really an incredible, beautiful truth. If you're bad at it, do it. What this means for our mission as a church is that we're not just seeking to create all of this. It means that we're not just seeking to create another experience. Okay? True, this is the best of all the worship experiences in town. Okay? The most awesome But we're not competing to be the most awesome worshiping experience in town. I can bring the lights out and the fog, okay? I can do that, right? Don't don't challenge me. I will do it. If that's what we need to do, no, that's not what we're going to do. What we need to do is imagine the life of our unchurched friend, okay? The friend of ours who's like, you know, church sounds really interesting, but I have lots of other experiences in my life. I have the experience that I like to pursue of reading a good book on the porch, or getting a special breakfast, say, a, like a daddy-daughter breakfast with my kid, you know? That's good. That's awesome. That's a good experience. The more we lower the bar and say that worship is an experience, or that it's an information dump, then the people who think they're too smart for it are like, I already know this stuff. I don't need to go to an information dump, right? Instead, we raise the bar. We raise the bar. If it's just an information dump, if it's just where people who are really good at worship pour the mug over their heads, we should anticipate the world shrugging their shoulders at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. We should anticipate that. But, if worship is that sanctified carjacking, not an event, a thing that has changed you, if it is God himself nourishing you, forming you against all the things that form you poorly on a given day, if it is a treasure map, a walk in the field where you stumble under real treasure, then it's worth your time and your neighbor's time too. If it's real, robust, formative, nourishing, desperately needed, then it is the worship of Jesus Christ. James Smith, I'll end with this. James Smith, who's a a, a theologian and writer from Calvin College, he talks about the transformation of God's people. And he says it's similar to, to, to encouraging people and moving people to set sail and discover a foreign land. 
He says in the worship service, what forms us is not a set of instructions on how to build a boat. That tends to be how we do worship. Here's how you build the boat if you want to worship. Okay, you want to set sail? Here's how you build the boat. Here's what you do. He says it's not that. He says it's not a list of things to get in order. He says rather to create explorers out of people who want to pursue, who want to set sail. You have to show them the beautiful immensity of the sea. This is what we do every week. We don't build the boat. We look at the beautiful immensity of the sea. We sail because to do so is to lay hold of the treasure, which is Christ. And when we do that, we learn that the treasure in a field is actually this truth. That you and I were Jesus' treasure first. That we were the treasure that he went searching for. That he found us. That he took us. That he gave everything he had to purchase us. We are the found people who inherit the treasure from the Lord Jesus Christ. He finds us so that we can find him. Worship shapes and forms us toward that destination. Let me pray for us.